following podcast is a production of Radio Felician, the voice of Felician University and the home of alternative rock done right. Download the Radio Felician app via the Apple app or Google Play stores or stream us 24-7 worldwide at RadioFelician.com. Radio Felician, the Falcon. Welcome to Elevating Education, a podcast from the schools of education and business and information sciences at Felician University. It's an in-depth look at the ever-changing world of education and the challenges educators face in 21st century America. Your hosts are Dr. Charity Dacey, Associate Professor and Associate Dean of the Felician University School of Education, and Dr. Joy De Los Reyes, Assistant Professor in the Felician University School of Business and Information Sciences and Chair of the Faculty Development Committee at Felician University. Welcome, everyone, to our second podcast in Elevating Education. My name is Dr. Charity Dacey. I'm an Associate Professor an Associate Dean in the School of Education, and I'd like to introduce my colleague today. Welcome again, everyone. My name is Lavina Sequera, and I'm the Associate Dean for Humanities and the Assistant Professor of Philosophy. And thank you so much for filling in for joy today. It is my pleasure. Now I'd like to introduce you to our guests. We are very excited because Dr. Ross Anderson is here today. He graduated with his PhD in education and training from the University of Oregon. His focus is on quantitative research methods. He received his bachelor's from Yale University in architecture, and most recently he taught a course in advanced research design to graduate students in the College of Education as well as the School of Business at the University of Oregon. Dr. Anderson is the principal investigator, co-founder, and captain of curiosity at the Creative Engagement Lab, where he works on projects for not only the National Science Foundation, United States Department of Education, but also private funders and foundations. Welcome, Dr. Anderson. Thank you. It's great to be here. I also want to introduce Ms. Jessica Land. She's an experiential instructional designer. She earned her Master's of Education from Prescott College in Experiential Education. She designs and delivers professional development for teachers, many rural teachers in Oregon, as well as other areas throughout the state. She has served as a high school teacher in Eugene and administrator for a traveling high school based in the state of Washington. Jessica is also a co-founder of the Creative Engagement Lab, where she serves as the queen of query and where she designs content and is an arts integration specialist and instructional designer. Welcome, Jessica. Thank you so much. So I think one of the things that we would love to know is um, the origin of your work, how you came to found the um, Creative Engagement Lab, and if you could tell us a little bit about your interest in doing educational research with this really interesting focus on enhancing educators' beliefs and practices about the creative development of adolescents in schools. Great. It's fun to think about and tell a little bit of the origin story for Creative Engagement Lab. We met through um, a U.S. Department of Education grant through the Arts and Education Development and Dissemination Program. It's a mouthful, um, but it's a really excellent program that's been in existence for about 20 years. And during my graduate studies at the University of Oregon, um, I was really excited about this new field of creativity that I was learning about and um, 
mentors like Dr. Yong Zhao uh, invited me to write a chapter in a book on counting what counts in education. And I wrote a couple terrible drafts that uh, introduced me to the, the practice of revision and revision, revision in anything that's scholarly and in scholarship in general. And, um, but through that, I learned about this amazing field of creativity, the science of creativity. Um, and alongside that also dove kind of back into my own personal experience in um, architectural design and in uh, my undergraduate work and really thinking through the experience this is that I had in interdisciplinary thinking and interdisciplinary um, learning in uh, architecture and kind of sparked this curiosity of, you know, why isn't more learning integrated in that way, especially within the arts domains. Um, I also had some amazing theater experiences in college that really awoke in me what kind of performance and working together with people, the, the deep vulnerability that creates immediately with, with people who you've never met before. Um, improvisation and so on. Um, and then my, my practice in Capoeira, which is an Afro-Brazilian art form. Um, it's uh, kind of dance and, and martial arts combined uh, that grows out of a, a culture of resistance in Brazil um, through the experience of slavery. Uh, that, I don't know, it just it really woke in me how you can learn so much about the world and about yourself and um, about, you know, ideas in science, ideas in math through these different artistic practices. So um, I threw out there the idea of proposing a, a project with local schools um, in the Eugene Springfield area to do arts integration in depth um, and to pair arts integration specialists with a teacher, with a, a group of teachers um, with one-on-one -on -one design time to um, innovate new possibilities and also try to really enhance the middle school experience um, from grade six to eight and study that as intensively as I could. So that became my second um, real informal graduate education. Um, and I got so lucky because um, three of the people that signed on to, to become arts integration specialists are now my co-founders with Creative Engagement Lab and, and Jess is um, one of them. And so that, that, um, experience, we published, I think, eight or nine papers and chapters on that project. We produced um, dozens and dozens of arts integration lesson examples and, uh, and produced um, kind of protocol and, and formats for how to do professional development with teachers in this realm, um, making many mistakes along the way and kind of learning what the, what the boundaries are for what teachers can um, manage. And I think the most important lessons were what kind of agency and autonomy teachers need to develop um, to really feel their own creative potential as instructional designers and as creative um, learners themselves. And so a lot of that learning really informed um, what became the MakeSpace project, which is our central work at Creative Engagement Lab um, and the subject of the article that we'll talk about a little later. Um, Jess, what about you? What what kind of like comes up as important uh, moments in our origin story? I want to add that what what I saw and felt at the school level during the project Ross is describing called ArtCore was, um, I think, as educators, I think it's easy to acknowledge the creative capacity of youth and to see 
um, to see that at work and to want to foster it. Um, but at the same time, when we walk into schools, a lot of the time with a desire to integrate the arts, we would find some teachers who were really excited about it. And the majority, I would say, of teachers who would say, I'm not creative. So art equals I'm not creative. And it was this reaction that we received a lot at the beginning. Um, and I was surprised by that and kind of shocked by it. Um, as someone who believes everyone has the capacity for creativity. And we really set about trying to design trainings for teachers that would help shift their paradigms about what creativity means and what um, their own creative capacity is. And so um, that's where we kind of started working with a focus on not am I creative, but how am I creative? And that um, the intention is that that makes its way back to students, that teachers have more capacity to make space for all students create creativity because they've found their own, if that makes sense. I think the other thing that um, we share as a deep commitment uh, across our team is um, looking at access to the arts and access to creativity as a major equity issue, not just for teachers, but also for students. And how deprived many of the learning environments, teaching and learning environments are of creativity. Um, and, and being able to dive into this field and contribute to it has uncovered the real depravity that uh, the state of education for a lot of schools is actually in. And um, so I think that's kind of been a mission-driven recognition for us that this is, um, this is about health and wellness um, and flourishing for the people who are who have taken on their own mission driven work of educating young people and um, and and those who are furthest from opportunity, those who are marginalized by racial, socioeconomic um, and all kinds of other disparities. Um, and, you know, the the. Training. So the training that we try to create, the opportunities we create are we try to um, commit to them being the most enjoyable, the most beautiful and the most powerful for for individual development um, for for teachers um, and with a lot of modeling and material that can then come into teachers work with students. Um, so that's been a, I think that's kind of a, our, our kind of core values. Um, we, we immediately began working together and found uh, how much we are aligned there. And that will take us for decades. <laughs> I find that really fascinating. So uh, this segues very nicely into what I was going to ask you, Jessica. More than ever, we know that uh, learning requires connections between people and ideas. Um, you've spoken a lot about resistance and creativity. And I just love the intersection between those two. And I think we can speak about that uh, later. Um, but what I'm really interested to um, ask you now is, would you be able to share with us the importance of creativity, um, thinking on the fly, um, so to speak? This is for me, it's a really big question, because I, I see our work on a lot of levels. And um, on it from the 
the hawk's eye view that where you can look at a, a whole project from from a high level you know we're in we're in the practice of uniting from the idea realm to the practical realm right that we're bringing research based creative uh, practice to teachers in the classroom who are working with real students in real time and having to make constant adjustments right um theory theory can break down quickly in the presence of many many variables and um and cha the challenges that working with people in real time presents so so from a big picture standpoint um it's this view of the theoretical and the practical kind of merging in this space of what was the language you used intersection thinking on the fly thinking, thinking on, on the fly, fly right yeah. that we bring these tools and we have to apply them to the real situation um and then i kind of fast forward to you know we have our foundation course for foundations for creative engagement practicing creative routines teachers reflecting on their own practice their own relationship to creativity and um, developing a sense of, of empathy around what it means to take risks and make mistakes and be vulnerable, right? So they're they're practicing that themselves. And then um, we have our, our strategies courses where teachers develop skills in particular areas. So they're, they're maybe developing their own visual arts practice, um, maybe getting over some resistance to the idea of sketching, for example, as a thinking strategy. In theater, they're developing skills around um, using gesture in the classroom or tableau. In the music and um, media course, they're investigating story and um, the role of story and rhythm. So they so then they get to this. The final course that we have is an advanced design course, advanced arts integration design, and it's focused around action research. So the teachers themselves now they've been through all this learning and they are asked to follow an authentic path of inquiry that they have around bringing any, any part of this arts integrated practice to their real context, to their students. And, and that's where we kind of, it's like this big project level vision of what our work is, hits the classroom and the teacher and their real environment. So, what I've seen in that, I want to give you a few examples of what teachers have done in that space because it's pretty cool. We've had a middle school teacher bringing visual arts routines to a math class to see how working with math anxiety can help students actually focus in on geometry skills. And so she, she was doing different visual arts creative routines over the series of maybe 12 weeks and watching her students level of engagement and their their stress about math and um, really watching their math anxiety fall away. So for her, when you talk about thinking on your feet, she's taking all of these creative routines she's been practicing in her coursework and she's looking at her content and she's looking at geometry and she's looking at her students and she's going, which routine might work? And actually the advanced course asks teachers to play in, to, to experiment. They're, they, they don't know the answers. It's how can I take um, these creative routines, say it's um, doing a selfie once a day. So we do a selfie practice. So 
students might come in and make a selfie that shows how they feel about doing math today. And just by do, repeating that routine, um, she might say selfies isn't working, I'm throwing it out. Or she might find that selfies is helping reduce 90% of her students' math anxiety and she wants to keep doing it. And so, so I think like the answer to your question is embedded in here around, you know, giving teachers practice with a host of creative processes that they can test with their students and really making space where the message we're continually relaying to our teachers is um, just try it, try it and see what happens, try it and observe the results, then reflect, then refine, then try it again a different way. And that we're in this iterative design process that's kind of never ending. Um, that helps them practice that um, thinking on their feet, right? Because the next time they come into a situation with ambiguity, they're going to have a tool that they can at least try and that, that that creativity is celebrated in that moment. Mistakes are celebrated. Risk-taking is celebrated. Um, there's so many examples. You know, I, I, one that's kind of right here for me is this is very recent. This music teacher in a high school. Actually, I think she works middle through high school. She was curious about whether creative routines such as storytelling and sketching could help her music students retain the symbols that music reading requires, that they were struggling with that. And um, she tested a variety of routines with them. And she ultimately found that storytelling, having them build story around these symbols was incredibly powerful for their retention. Um, so to me, it's like, yeah, what tools is she bringing in by the time she's in the advanced course and how can she apply them and test them and have that freedom to fail and try again? You just made me think of of several things, Jess, that I think relate. And one of them um, is, you know, this this sort of field of science of creativity that we're immersed in um, and we're members of. It's it's um, it helps to break down what's happening inside of the creative thinking process, which definitely relates to the artistic process in different domains, um, though in each domain it's sort of different. And even then kind of why do we why do humans love story? Why is story such an important part of how we make meaning and how we shape that meaning and then actually turn that meaning into kind of concrete understanding? Um, that's my dog in the background. She's, <laughs> she's uh, I guess, like kind of applauding in her own way. Um, the, and, and I think so we are, we are introducing creative routines to teachers that like are focused on specific parts of that creative process. Um, so it could be about um, making associations across different domains. Um, one of the things can be just about disrupting kind of the convergent to one right answer approach that a lot of school actually really ends up becoming and much more divergent thinking where there are many possibilities um, playing games in, in that space and kind of then making that divergent space actually become more systematic in the academic work. Um, so how many different ways can you arrive at the same result in, in a math problem? Um, or how many different ways can you think about solving it? And then the body, how much the body, and this, um, I mean, this is sort of across our, our like heaviest influencers in our work, the body is such an important yeah. learning tool and really underutilized and underappreciated um, and really understudied 
inside of education. Um, there's a field of embodied cognition that is fascinating. That's um, really breaking through, I think, some of the kind of dualistic thinking that we have about the body and the brain. Um, and, and people who are, uh, one of our influencers is certainly Mary Helen Imordino Yang, who has been like trying to really think through, you know, push on bringing the emotions into learning, not trying to remove emotions. So Jess was talking about being able to kind of actually get help teachers see where anxiety can be so important. Um, facing uncertainty is so important. It's how creativity happens. So what's happening inside of our bodies that we can, um, you know, actually use as a tool, as a, um, what Mary Helen calls um, skilled intuition. So if we, if we're kind of facing this anxiety over and over again, um, which creative practice does in, require and include, how can it become a skilled intuition for us? Um, and maybe there's a possibility here we haven't seen before. Um, and one person I just, I just read this quote and I just loved it from Christopher Day, who works in action research and as a scholar in that area. And um, inside of the advanced course that, that Jess was talking about, one of the things that uh, I think is really important in that like systematic and rigorous process, that inquiry process is um, to break away from being a prisoner to your own program, trying something very different um, to, to really break away and break out of that prison of your own program or the programming that's been kind of top down prescribed to you. Um, and then kind of deeply questioning the assumptions that are there. Uh, so these are, yeah, the space of uncertainty is kind of a really, um, beautiful place. And, and as Jess mentioned, like the, the outcome seems to continually be deeper empathy for the risk taking that students are asked to do on a daily basis. Yeah, and I think um, the space that you speak about, um, the space of uncertainty that you just mentioned, I think that's a, a space of fluidity. Uh, and I also think that space is a process where teachers become or are in the process of becoming their authentic selves. Uh, would you agree with that? Absolutely. That's you are speaking my language. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's like the perfect segue to um, my next question, because Maxine Green has been known to say we are what we are not yet, and that everything is about becoming. And one of the things that um, when I think back to my days as a classroom teacher, um, she also said that part of teaching is helping people create themselves. And so when I read your work, one of the things that really kind of struck me was that you're um, honoring Maxine Green's legacy in a lot of ways as someone who um, really was a champion for aesthetic education. Um, she was all about arts integration in schools and social imagination. I know she was an activist as well. And I'm just curious um, if that if that resonates at all with you and if you see any connections, what are they? But more so, who are, give us a little glimpse into those other pivotal um, influencers in your work. What is the theoretical foundation? You've already started to mention it, but I think it's important to acknowledge. Yeah, I, I think Maxine Green, um, her work is, uh, it has such a 
big legacy. Um, and we are absolutely aligned uh, to her thinking and um, just listening recently to her speak about her own philosophical paradigm. Um, it's a lot about the body. It's a lot about our earliest learning is in our body. The earliest um, experiences we have are embodied before they're purely cognitive, if there is such a thing. Um, and she also really asks to return to our philosophical ways of looking at the world, which I think is one of the powerful parts of the uh, teacher-led action research experiences, to really ask what are the philosophical propositions that actually you function from and that you work from and that you think from and that you feel from. Um, so I think she is absolutely an, an influencer. And I think one of her influences um, uh, it certainly has been an influence for us, um, John Dewey, uh, hearing you say, you know, that the, the, her quote of, um, of becoming that emergentist philosophy is without a doubt inside of uh, deeply inside of at the or at the heart of what we're how we think and how we approach this work and the democratic ideals that um, that kind of show everything is becoming, you know, what we what we are comfortable in and what we know is no longer in this moment as fixed as it was and as real and what is becoming and what we can actually create the new possibilities, um, especially in collaboration with students, putting students at the center of it is um, limitless. And, and so John Dewey as an emergentist philosopher and, and um, Mark Johnson uh, introduced me to a lot of that Dewey work and he's a embodied philosophy of mind um, scholar and he got, I mean, he kind of like tapped into our collective obsession about metaphor and looking at metaphor as this really incredible tool for meaning making um, that as now we have been modeling for teachers and now actually asking teachers to play in and develop skill with, um, it, the doors just fly open and our metaphor radar has become really tuned and, um, and teachers sort of see the whole foundation course is um, metaphorical as a river journey. And, you know, they numerous teachers came out of that realizing, oh, I could make my whole unit a metaphor um, where, you know, students are hunting for new ideas and they're out in the forest, or I think somebody called it a metaphorist. Their unit's going to be a metaphorist. Um, and so, I yeah, the, the, yeah, the work in metaphor, it's, it's a definitely an obsession of ours. It's an, it's, I think the, maybe the most relevant aspect of creative thinking inside of arts integration and inside of, inside of creativity inside of schools. So we're really playing in that sandbox and have a couple studies underway. Um, one of the studies actually revealed the metaphors teachers made about distance learning changed across the time that they were in our course. And it revealed more um, pleasant emotional experience, <laughs> more pleasant and energetic um, ways of looking at distance learning. Can you uh, share some of those metaphors? That's fascinating. Yeah. Um, you know, I'll dig them up. I actually have that uh, handy on my desktop. Um, you know, I mean, one that comes to mind, let's see, one that... <laughs> When that comes to mind was, um, you know, before the, I kind of, as they were in the middle of the pandemic, they thought of, there was a couple of teachers who thought of, uh, let's see, distance learning as a spare tire or as a really unhealthy marriage. It's like a miserable <laughs> marriage. 
um, or as a surprise party that somebody threw um, that goes terribly awry. Um, you know, and, and as they got further along, it became more opportunistic um, where they, they just saw more possibility in what distance learning can, I guess, maybe offer uh, to disrupt the status quo. Um, and I guess one of the influences I want to share, I mean, uh, Jess, I'll, I'll, I'll leave you to maybe share about uncertainty and um, our colleague, Ron Baghetto. Um, but Vlad Glavinu, you don't want to? Okay, I will. I you mean, definitely I, should share about Okay, <laughs> well, well, Vlad Glavinu and Robert, Ron Baghetto are two people in the creativity field that are just kind of big thinkers. And 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 so Vlad Glavinu has proposed a whole new sort of field of inquiry about the possible. And I've, I've worked with him on an encyclopedia of the possible, looking at all these different areas. And I think it's a really uh, wonderfully optimistic and wonder-seeking way of looking at the at, at you know the human experience and the phenomenon that we're interested in. Um, I also uh, you know in another project have learned about identity-based motivation, so how our identities really shape our action and how we think. And Daphne Oysterman and Mesmin Destin and those those folks, um, and that has certainly helped us sort of see how creative identity for teachers is shaped by a lot of different cues and a lot of different um, aspects of agency. Um, and so even, you know, Albert Bender's work on social cognition and agency and what agency means and how it's not just individualistic, it's not our own experiences, it's vicarious um, sharing and modeling. And um, these, yeah, these have, these have been very influential. And then I'll just share, Ron Baghetto has he, he suggested that um, a path to creativity and education needs to be through structured uncertainty. And so what that has meant for us in translating that to teachers is, you know, unplan your lessons, you know, find moments where you can insert uncertainty, scaffold it. Um, but that's where you create the persistent or the, the kind of like productive struggle that leads to more persistence that like leads to the skin, skilled intuition of what anxiety can tell us or what fear can tell us a fear of failure, for instance. Um, so these, yeah, I don't know. Those are, those are some of them. We, we are pluralistic. <laughs> we are really love to stretch across theory um, domains and across disciplines. And um, we hopefully are doing justice to them, <laughs> but, but adding, adding, and I think our, the framing that we've done in this study that we'll talk about is uh really creative agency for teachers. I don't know, it just feels empowering. Jess, I'll kick it to you, what, what about you? Well, I'll just, the, the, the scholars I wanna bring into this conversation are the ones who help me continually remember that integrating the arts is a culturally responsive practice mm -hmm. and that um, we, we care a lot about anti-racism, we care a lot about um, celebrating the unique creative contributions of all students from all backgrounds. And so we lean heavily um, on Zaretta Hammond's work. Um, we've gone back to Gloria Ladson Billings work. Um, we have a couple colleagues um, who have almost like a, in a way, like a sister organization to ours called Studio Pathways and um, Mariah I, I never know how to pronounce her last name, but Rankin Landers and Jessa Brie Moreno are these phenomenal colleagues who 
do similar work down in California and who've um, uh, collaborated with us on past trainings and who I personally have learned a lot from. Um, they ask, does your curriculum love your students? Which mm-hmm. um, is something I return to a lot. So, um, Yes, that makes me think of Nell Noddings and the ethic of care. You're bringing in so many elements here, and I think the multiplicity of what you have, all both of the connections that you guys, there's so many connections you're making, and it's almost very Vygotskyan as well, because the mm-hmm. idea that Ross raised, I mean, that scaffolding and unplanning your lessons and disequilibrium, you know, being uncomfortable with uncertainty, but in an okay space where there's still that safety and the trust so that you're going to help students navigate through it. I also think of Anderson, like Bloom's taxonomy and creativity is at the top of that taxonomy. When you're synthesizing information, when you're creating, there's no higher order thinking that can happen beyond creativity and creating something. It takes so much brain power and it's so interdisciplinary. Everything you're talking about crosses all genres, not just multiple theorists. So I think that's really lovely. And I'm also very interested in the space um, that the teachers and the students occupy. You know, the space of disruption, as you called it, the space of uh, uncertainty, the idea that educators have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable um, in order to find the authentic selves. I think that is a space for learning. Uh, but I also think that space is a space wherein they negotiate and navigate their identities. And you spoke a little bit about the, the identities that they bring into these contextual situations. And most of these situations are situated, right? They are, they, they are very contextual. They are, they, they are uh, framed, if you will. So. My question to you then would be, um, in these interactions between teachers and um, students, it's it's not just the teachers changing, but it's, it's both of them changing in that process of interaction. Um, what changes have you seen in their identities, given the fact that they bring identities into the space? Uh, what kind of changes have you seen in their identities? Well, simply, and I feel somewhat globally, a shift from I'm not creative to here are all the ways I am creative and that them um, actually showing up, willing to own a sense of their own creative capacity. Ross, do you have any examples handy? Well, I mean, there, you know, there's this... um one teacher that we've been working with, and uh, he works with first grade students. I, I don't know, I just am stunned by his, his process and his experience because, um, you know, this is somebody that came into the work um, not really approaching his work with students um, with a sense of responsibility about their creativity, about their artistic skills as well. And, and yet, you know, felt enough affinity with what this work is purposed to do that he joined because it's all voluntary. This is all every this is we have been working with teachers often as singular teachers inside their schools. Um, so they're stepping into something that maybe they don't have they don't have a teaching partner nearby. So they are like 
some it's tapping into something in them that is that feels important and often i think it goes to the philosophical connections um that you know something happens for students when they are being creative that is different than in other learning experiences how to do it you know and um, this isn't training I've gotten as a teacher. There's, I've never taken a course on creativity. I've, the last time I took an art class or any kind of class was years ago. And so there's something that's distant, but it's there. And I think the, um, the identity piece be, begins, it's like the professional efficacy of teachers is such an important identity. And I think one of the things that feels most tenuous is that the, very prescribed nature of a lot of what they're asked to do puts that in doubt, casts it in doubt. So, um, but they're innovators, they're thinking on their feet, you know, and, and so as a professional educator, like to become a creative educator, I think is, is tapping into a desire. Um, and so one of the, this teacher that I'm going to talk about, he, he ended up committing himself, and this is the importance of really structured inquiry processes like action research, he committed himself to doing sketching with students every day for like six weeks. And he asked beforehand, you know, how many of you enjoy sketching and how many of you feel like you're an artist? So an identity question for students. And this, these are six-year-olds. Um, and he did this in an interview with them and he got to kind of really have a little conversation, a little dialogue. And the percentage of students who, who did not enjoy sketching uh, and the percentage of students who didn't feel any kind of identi identity as an artist was way higher than I think he imagined. And, uh, and it was in the majority. Um, and I think if he hadn't committed himself, he might've said, all right, well, I don't wanna do this because they're gonna not like it. And <laughs> maybe it's gonna feel like a failure for me. Um, but that commitment, took him through six weeks and he documented every week where kids felt and the same two questions. That's it. The same two questions. And by the end, it had been a complete inverse of where he began. And he saw the, he's, I mean, parents were calling him, telling him, you know, thank you for all this artwork that they're bringing home, you know, and these are just little sketches. Um, but he saw all these things happening. And I think he like the identity statement that I saw in his reflection um, stands out because he's like, you know, I realized, how messy learning actually is and that he's kind of a conductor and that students will follow his students will follow him and um and so he's i think like the risk taking that's inside of being a creative teacher um is and the identity development is really importantly like supported by a community and this sort of networked community that is has been created by the program. Um, it allowed people to, I feel, I think feel belonging inside of this, a kind of a community that they didn't even know they wanted to be part of at the beginning or, or you know, that they became, they kind of discovered. Um, so this is where I think like you were saying, Levine, it's not, it's situated. It's not just the identity. It's not like in isolation. It's situated alongside peers and alongside a community that's supporting them and pushing them. and. Um, and, you know, and teachers like Jess, who are giving them feedback and encouragement, also saying, you know, um, what about this? Or have you thought about that? Or um, tell me more. And, you know, and their own revision process, um, you know, taking place. 
You're listening to Elevating Education, a podcast from Felician University in New Jersey. Now I just want to kind of shift us a little bit and talk. We're going to kind of delve in more to the current research, the work that you guys have both been doing with your team. And the reason why I bring this up is because 45% of teachers um, report experiencing burnout. And Ingersoll points out that burnout is definitely a contributor to the national loss of roughly 40 teachers in their first, 40% of all new teachers in their first five years of teaching, almost 50% leave the profession. They don't move schools, they don't move districts, they leave the profession entirely. And that was pre-pandemic. Now, Santoro refers to the dilemmas that teachers face, the things that we've started to touch upon. Ross, particularly, you just mentioned a few. Um, She refers to these dilemmas as something more serious than burnout, something that she refers to as a sense of demoralization, of being disconnected from the purposes that you got into teaching for. So one of the things I wanted to ask you is what have you seen Um, In terms of burnout, burnout places responsibility on teacher self-care, like, you know, do more yoga and it'll get better and have a better work-life balance and everything will be all right. Um, What Santoro talks about with demoralization takes into account more than that, but like the more systematic inequities, the lack of resources, the reforms that aren't happening that may need to, the structures at large. And so when now post-pandemic international studies are showing that a third of teachers report being stressed or extremely stressed, um, the heightened ethical challenges, moral dilemmas that the pandemic and virtual learning um, brought forth has really exacerbated this quite a bit. And the Edweek Research Center They've found now that over half of teachers say that they are somewhat or very likely to leave teaching within the next two years. So we've seen teacher shortages across the country. This is reaching epic proportions now. And the kinds of stress and ethical challenges that teachers face, um, I really kind of want to know what you envision as some of what you found could alleviate some of this work um, stress. And I love that you cited Kali because obviously the two most consistent stressors for teachers are workload, consistently workload and student behavior. So what did you find with your work? How could um, some of this be alleviated knowing that this, I mean, I feel like your framework that you really um, delved into quite nicely, and I really wanted to kind of dig in a little bit now and talk about that, that really the stress reduction, the enhanced well-being, um, the creative agency were all results of this study and this work, very positively so. And I'm sorry, this is my dissertation area, so that's why I I go on and on. so (laughs) good. Well, it's so, I mean... I think what what I can offer is a little framing and then Jess, I think stories of what you've seen with teachers, Um, you know, the the framing um, as as some research happens, like we we are opportunistic as researchers and we say, all right, actually, 
I've got to change my whole framework because, well, there's a pandemic. So we really have to be looking at, we should be looking at what aspects of well-being may be fortified through creative development and, and a creative agency being at the heart of, of what we're attending to. Um, these results in this study were replicated in a previous study prior to the pandemic. And we saw huge changes in some of the, the theories that teachers held about creativity. Um, we saw huge drops, or I'm sorry, um, yeah, drops in their fixed mindset about creativity. Mm. So the sense that creativity is you're born with it. You yeah. only have so much potential and effort is not worth it, really. Growth um, mindset. Yes, a growth mindset in inside of creativity, because creativity, just like intelligence, has all of this baggage, social, cultural baggage. And we carry these myths. And um, it was so fascinating to see that actually uh, in the first study we did, teachers were carrying almost equal levels of fixed and growth mindset about creativity. So completely contradictory ideas all at once. So why does that matter for their resilience for their joy in, in teaching for their uh, and, and the stress reduction that we also like looked at. Well, I think what the links that we're making is that, you know, those beliefs, just like Carol Dweck and colleagues have, have mm -hmm. kind of proposed, those beliefs are the starting point for how you're going to approach a situation that's tricky or take a risk or, um, you know, try harder, <laughs> persist in something that is challenging for you. And that's for young people and that's for older people. Um, and also the power of the messaging and modeling that comes inside of a, a learning environment or a home when a parent or a teacher is carrying a, a, a fixed or growth mindset. Um, so the trickle down effect of changing those mindsets could be really big. And then alongside that, the sort of confidence and self-efficacy for actually engaging in creative teaching and trying to shape creative development for students um, is another really important starting point. If you don't have that self-belief, then trying is probably going to be um, much harder for you than if you're, if you've kind of feeling that, you know, there's a potential that this could be successful. Um, I think the, the, so the framing around these beliefs is really important for agency. Um, but then what's actually happening in practice. So when this is actionable, and teachers are doing this, why might it be resulting in some of these changes that we found? Um, and the study kind of reveals a huge surprising effects. We did not expect to see an increase in joy during the pandemic year of 2020, um, at a like medium effect size. Like that's clinically really quite important. And also a medium effect decrease in their like secondary traumatic stress, their avoidant experience of avoidance um, and intrusion of, of the stress of caring for students who are universally going through a traumatic experience. Um, that was surprising to us, very surprising. And, and, and I think what, what we learned, so we did a mixed method approach because one, we didn't have a control group, but two, we also wanted to learn well, what are the mechanisms. And what was fascinating is that the mechanisms were all across the board for teachers. So almost as many as there were teachers in our study. Um, you know, it, it was about connection to students. It was about seizing the moment and just throwing everything away that they had been doing and trying something totally new. It was about feeling the freedom and, and license and permission to do something new for students because, you know, it's the pandemic, so why not? Um, it was about self-care in some cases. 
Um, it was about meeting students' needs where they were and making, trying to get them to, you know, trying to bring enjoyment to students through a really tough period. Um, and being basically being able to do something, right? Being agentic, feeling like they were agents in, in making what was a terrible experience somehow maybe better. Um, and that's, I think, at the heart of, you know, if you're, if you're experiencing trauma or you're caring for those. So secondary traumatic stress has not been studied in education nearly enough, in my opinion. And I think it's part of why the demoralization framework is so important. And it goes back to Maxine Green and philosophically, are teachers in alignment with their philosophies and their whole value system of why they're doing education? Is that in alignment with the system that they're working in? And across the board, you see, no, it's not for all kinds of reasons. Um, and we can't, we can't like, you know, agentify, you know, their, them to completely change everything, but we can, they are empowered to do something. And, and that's, I think like the, the, the heart of this. And, and so seeing, and, and I, you know, the empathy for the creative risk-taking, I think is also really important too, because they're also like, you know, learning the vulnerability of sharing their creative work with peers and, but also like enjoying the new connection that they feel instant connection to another human during a time of deep, deep isolation. Um, I don't know. Those are, those, those are sort of my immediate thoughts. Um, the other thing I just want to throw out there is I, I, when I present this work in, uh, you know, at you know the Association for Education Research of America, like these different larger research conferences, people are without a doubt emphasizing this job demands resource model, which puts yes. burnout yes. as part of the model. And I really, I've been challenging people on it from this perspective that Santoro offers us, which is go deeper, go below yes. the surface where values and, and philosophies live. And then think about the systemic responsibility that we have that we're actually placing on teachers when we look at it as just burnout. We study at that level above the surface. So um, yeah, I, I, and I, I will say I, this was uh, informed by one of the reviewers from the journal that really helped us reframe. And I, and I really appreciated their collaboration. Well, it really, I have to then ask the follow-up. I promise this is my last question and then I'm going to turn it over to Lavina, but um, because you mentioned Dweck and growth mindsets, I would say the sibling or cousin of that is um, Ames and Archer and goal orientations, right? So we see yeah. goal orientations in the classroom all the time. And for our more enlightened teachers who are aware of those and actively promote um, what would be, you know, the intrinsic motivation model versus a performance, you know, it, the focus is on mastery and the intrinsic value of learning a task. This work on creative agency is going to be intrinsically rewarding and it's going to um, increase all sorts of um, positive performance behaviors, uh, collaborations, relationships in the classroom. But how can we better promote, what advice would you give to educational leaders, principals, superintendents, to help foster this more in our school environments? Because that, that risk-taking, um, you know, there's tenure and there's all sorts of structures 
in place that make teachers reticent to do some of this work? And when it's so beneficial for the students as well as our educators, what are some of those kind of policy implications around and just practices to increase this work? Jess? Well, I want to say that I do feel that bringing administrative people on board has been one of our biggest challenges because we can see the value of this work on a school-wide level. Um, and often it's challenging to, um, to get the time and attention of administrators because they're justifiably busy and focused on a lot of, of things. From my framework, I want to say that felt experience speaks volumes. And so in my perfect world, in my dream world, the administrators are engaging with the course material and the type of training that the teachers that we work with are engaging in so they can feel the, the effects on a physical level and on a relational level. Um, personally, I think a lot breaks down when it just it gets communicated into um, words on a page or directives or mandates. And so there's not much embodiment in a memo or a report. No, just one last thing. I no, think um, one thing that we've seen that I really appreciate is when teachers are excited and invested and the work speaks for itself, they see the effects on the student level and it becomes contagious in a school and the administration naturally responds because they see it working. I like when things function that way. It has happened. I, I would love to see more of that. This is Elevating Education. Just as uh, Food for Thought, oftentimes we are again uh, working within a system uh, with these fixed propositions. And so I think your framework speaks very nicely as to how we, we can break free, or at least shows us a vision of what it can be by breaking through uh, and setting this new stage. So thank you very much for that. So my final question for you is, what are you hopeful about for the future of education? I'll say for us, we, are, we have real reasons to be hopeful um, in a new partnership with the School District of Philadelphia and a local organization named Children First. We have a large US Department of Education grant in the Education Innovation Research Program. Uh, we're in our first year developing relationships with these schools. And we have had, um, we now have 14 principals that have completed applications to participate. And that's at the principal level. So really showing ownership, really showing um, the will to give up their own PD time in the school <laughs> to support teachers to go through these trainings, um, and a real desire to, um, you know, do something very new and fresh, and and so that actually is really about supporting teacher creativity, and su supporting teacher um, social emotional well being. So that I mean, that's incredibly hopeful for us because um, you know it's been challenging to put this work at the center of, of, of why, why we educate kids, why school, why, you know, what are we aiming for? What's the goal? What, what are we hoping to, for a daily experience to be and for the, you know, the, the outcome of student um, flourishing to be. And, um, and so that's, I don't know, it's so uh, wonderful to see that it, there's such encouragement, there's such buy-in and, and interest um, in the school district of Philadelphia and, 
Um, and I think, I don't know, on a larger scale for me, I think um, the whole field of social emotional development is really accelerating and um, the center or the collaborative for academic and social emotional learning um, is now working in dozens of huge districts, um, which and systematically really focusing first on teachers and on the systems around them. Um, so there, there are, there's a lot of really good work happening and I think a lot more people paying attention um, and it's driven and it's being questioned and critiqued from a, a perspective of anti-racist commitments and cultural sustainability. And so I, all of the right conversations are happening and we're trying to be a part of it. Well, and New Jersey is not far from Philadelphia. So when you guys are out here, we're going to have to meet up. I am also oh, great. a dog yes. lover, this pet friendly podcast. We thank your dog. <laughs> we thank you, Ross. We thank you, Jessica. And it's been such a pleasure to hear about all of the work that you're doing elevating education. This podcast has been a production of Radio Felician, the voice of the Franciscan University of New Jersey. Visit us anytime at RadioFelician.com. Want to send an email? Reach out at radiostation at Felician.edu. Radio Felician, the Falcon.